Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. War has played a key role in the history of the United States, from the nation's founding right down to the present. War made the U.S. independent, kept it together, increased its size, and established it as a global superpower. Understanding America's wars is essential for understanding American history. Welcome to Key Battles of American History, a podcast in which we discuss American history through the lens of the most important battles of America's wars. Here is your host, James Early. Hello and welcome to Key Battles of American History. I'm excited today to introduce a brand new season. This is going to be season four. Season one, if you recall, was World War I on film. Season two was Key Battles of the Pacific War, World War II. And season three was the Pacific War on film. Now we're going to be going back to another battle series. In fact, this season will consist of all of the major wars between the Revolutionary War and the Civil War. We're going to do a series on the War of 1812, then we'll do a series on the Texas Revolution, and then we'll do a series on the Mexican-American War. And since we're going to be on the War of 1812 for about the next 12, 13, 14, depends on how you count them, episodes, I'll just call this Key Battles of the War of 1812. So welcome to Key Battles of the War of 1812. I'm James Early, of course, your host. You know that, hopefully. And I'm very excited to introduce to you a special guest. I have a, co- a new co-host. He's not co-hosted with me on this podcast before, and is my good friend and fellow podcaster, Mr. Stephen Guerra. Steve, how are you, sir? I'm great. Thank you so much for inviting me to co-host on this show. I'm really excited, and I love the War of 1812 as much as you can love a war. I guess you're supposed to love a war. Yeah, I know. I understand totally. Listeners, you may or may not know this, but just in case you don't, Steve is a podcaster himself and has been for many years. He has two really great podcasts that I highly recommend to you. The older of the two is The History of the Papacy, which I've appeared on a couple of times as a guest. And then the other one is Beyond the Big Screen, which I've been on a lot of times. I don't even know how many times, Steve, maybe five or six or seven. Oh, at least. Yeah. <laughs> Depends on how you count the Gettysburg one, if you count that as one <laughs> or four, but Anyway, Steve and I love to work together and we talk a lot just on, like on Facebook and other places. And we've been planning this series for quite some time. And I think you're really going to enjoy it. The War of 1812, of course, is a war that very few Americans know anything about. Even history buffs would be hard pressed to come up with a whole lot about it. Maybe they would remember, say, the Battle of New Orleans or Fort McHenry or maybe the USS Constitution's one-on-one battles with other ships, good old Ironsides. But We are going to bring you a somewhat in-depth, not super in-depth, but fairly in-depth look at the war. There's going to be 12 main episodes, and then we're going to have two or three shorter episodes. If you want, you can call them sidetrack episodes. They are essential, but they're just things that didn't quite fit into the main episodes. We're trying to keep these episodes down to an hour or perhaps less. And so uh, I guess with that in mind, I should just stop yakking and we should get started. (laughs) What do you think, Steve? Yeah, it sounds good. And I mean, where to start? Start in the beginning. We don't have to go back too, too far to get into where the beginnings of the war started with the Treaty of Paris and the Jeffersonian Revolution. So that's we're not going back to the Roman times or anything. Right. Yes. (laughs) Several billion years ago, uh, there was a big bang in the universe. No, we're not going to go back that far, but. That would be big history. But yes, I think that is a good place to start, Steve, because as you know, the American Revolution was formally ended in 1783 with the Treaty of Paris. But although that brought peace between Great Britain and the United States, it by no means solved all the problems between the two nations. And the the two nations are going to have a rocky relationship over the next few decades that's going to 
eventually sour and lead us into the War of 1812. So that's what we're going to be discussing. This first episode is called The Road to War. So let's talk about the Treaty of Paris. The Treaty of Paris, as I suggested, did not solve all the problems between the United States and Great Britain. First of all, the boundary between the U.S. and Canada was not firmly settled. Canada, of course, was not independent at that time. It was a British colony. Also, the British left troops in seven forts on American soil in the Northwest. Actually, six, and then they built another one in modern-day Ohio. That's Fort Miami. So that is not exactly keeping the treaty. Imagine having today, like, Russian forts on American soil or British forts or the forts of any other nation. But the Americans were relatively weak and really couldn't do much about it. Now, obviously, everybody knows our first president was George Washington. He and his successor, John Adams, they increased the size of the army and navy, and they built a network of coastal fortifications. But as I said, there were still some issues between the United States and Great Britain. Many, but not all of those issues were settled in the Jay Treaty of 1794. This treaty ensured good relations with Britain, including Britain agreeing to evacuate the forts we just talked about. And it also resulted in a great expansion of overseas trade. But the French government resented it and encouraged French privateers to prey on American shipping. Keep in mind that the French Revolution had just occurred and Britain and France were at war, and they're going to be at war almost constantly for the next two decades. So that is the, the context. The United States is kind of stuck in a tug of war between France and Great Britain, and that in and of itself is going to cause a lot of problems. And one of those problems was what historians call the quasi-war. And that broke out with, between the United States and France. And the Quasi-War was an undeclared naval war between the U.S. and France in which the U.S. Navy and American merchant vessels performed very well. In all, American ships destroyed three French warships, losing only one themselves. They captured 88 privateers, and they recaptured 78 American vessels that the French had taken. Now, fast forward to 1800, Thomas Jefferson is elected president. He takes office the next year in 1801. He promises all these major changes. He calls it the, the, a revolution. And Jefferson was very tight-fisted. He wanted a very, very small government. And he was determined to cut government spending, including on the military. Jefferson made drastic cuts to the army and the Navy. Now, later, to be fair, in 1808, he would expand the army to 10,000 but he would give officer appointments based on party loyalty, not military ability. Jefferson's national defense strategy centered on militia. Of course, militia, we all know those are part-time soldiers. I call them in my classes when I teach, I call them farmers with guns. <laughs> and uh, he also, Jefferson, focused on privateers. We'll talk more about what that is later. And also small gunboats, which some called the Mosquito Fleet. These were just what they sound like. They were They're basically big boats that had one single gun on them. And as we're going to see, they weren't a replacement for the frigates and the larger ships that had been built into the Washington administration, but which Jefferson puts on mothballs for the most part. Jefferson and Congress did spend a fair amount of money on coastal fortifications. But as historian Donald Hickey writes, he says, quote, without a fleet to serve as the nation's first line of defense, most of the nation's great cities remained exposed to attack from the sea, end of quote. And I should say that Donald Hickey is the historian that I'm going to quote the most during this series. He is considered by almost every historian to be the dean of 1812 scholarship. He's made a whole career out of the War of 1812. He's written the standard one-volume work on it, just called The War of 1812. Very, very good book that's been through several revisions. And he's written several other books on the War of 1812. And he, I forget the name of the university where he teaches, but if you want a good solid intro beyond what Steve and I are going to give you, definitely read Donald Hickey's book, The War of 1812. Okay, so that is kind of the, the background and some of the, the early military history. I wonder if Jefferson might have been on something, at least with the army, that a lean standing army with of a few thousand and then having the state militias carry most of the weight, you might call it, if that could have worked, if it was maybe done effectively. Yeah, that's a good question. On paper, it seems like a, uh, you know, it seems like a good idea, but the key phrase that you mentioned was if the state militias were working or if they were strong, and that's just the problem. 
militias back in this time were very unprofessional. You know, when I talk to my students, I will say a militia is kind of like the National Guard, except nowhere near as professional. Our National Guard is very professional. They train very well. But these militias were basically almost social organizations. And when they would get together, they did a lot more eating and drinking and gambling and smoking and just kind of sitting around telling stories than they did actual military training. As we will see throughout this series, they cannot be relied upon. You know, this was true to a certain extent in the American Revolution, and it's also going to be true in the War of 1812. So I would agree with you, Steve, but that if you mentioned is a very big if, and <laughs> the militia is just not going to cut the mustard. Most of the time, there are exceptions, but most of the time they won't. Now, moving forward, it seems like the British, they're, they start harassing American shipping. And what did that lead to? Yes. In 1805, the British government started trying to regulate American trade with France, with whom, as I mentioned, Britain was at war. You know, that makes sense. Britain has a long history of doing this, and they're going to do this in the future, too. If you are selling food and supplies to Britain's enemy, then in a way, you are also Britain's enemy. And so it makes sense. It is in Britain's self-interest to try to minimize the amount of goods that go into France. The British Navy began seizing American ships. And in the next few years, between 300 and 400 American ships were seized, although most were later released to their owners. British ships also operated in American waters without permission. That is uh, obviously a gross violation of sovereignty, but they could do it, so they did. And then that leads us to what's going to be the number one issue between the British and the Americans, and that is impressment. And I always tell my students, when I say impressment, I don't mean like the British sail by an American ship and the Americans are just overawed by their good looking uniforms and their <laughs> cannon and all that. Whoa, wow, I'm impressed. <laughs> Not that kind of impressment, but let's talk about impressment. American trade grew so quickly in the early national period that there was a shortage of sailors on merchant vessels. American captains and ship owners began recruiting British sailors to join their crews, and many did because the pay and the working conditions on American ships were so much better than they were on a British ship. On a British ship, life was just brutal for a common sailor. We'll talk more about that later. But if you, could, if you were a British sailor and you could somehow get away and desert and join the American Navy, that was definitely an upgrade in your lifestyle as well as your pay. And by Jefferson's presidency, about 30% of the 70,000 crew members on American ships were British. At the same time, Britain, as we've said, was at war with France. And so Britain had a shortage of sailors. To help solve this problem, Royal Navy press gangs would board American ships to take British seamen who had joined American crews. You know, they said, hey, you're, you're a British sailor. We never gave you permission to leave and we're taking you back. The problem with that is sometimes they took Americans instead. And between 1803 and 1812, Probably over 6,000 American sailors were taken in this manner. There's no way to ever know exactly how many, but that's the most common estimate I've seen. About a third of these were eventually released, but two-thirds remained prisoners of the Royal Navy. You know, and, and we, we get into the problem here because the British and the Americans had very different definitions of citizenship. For the British government, if you were born a British citizen, really a subject, if you were born a subject of the king... You were always that. You were a subject for life. Whereas in the United States, you can become a U.S. citizen. You could start out your life as a British citizen and become a U.S. citizen. But, but the British didn't recognize that. So their definition of what, it, what a British person is was much more expansive than the American definition. The scholar George Don, who wrote a book called 1812, The Navy's War, he writes this. This is what he, he writes about American seamen who were impressed in the British Navy. He says, quote, service was indeterminate. British ships became prisons. Shore leave was never granted to men whom officers suspected might desert, even in the most remote locations. It was not uncommon for pressed men to spend years aboard ship without ever once being allowed on dry land. Given the innumerable hazards on men of war and the bestial punishment code, an impressed sailor would be lucky if he made it out alive. Impressment was thus akin to a death sentence. Yeah, really awful. In 1796, the U.S. government tried to protect sailors from press gangs by issuing certificates of citizenship. 
British press gangs, though, gave little credence to these, however, because they were easily faked and many British seamen had obtained one. Then by the time we get to 1806, American diplomats negotiated the Monroe-Pinckney Treaty with Great Britain. In this treaty, the British agreed to greatly limit their interference with American trade, although they refused to give up the practice of impressment. Jefferson was so disgusted with the treaty that he refused to even submit it to the Senate, and it died. And the failure to ratify the Monroe-Pinckney Treaty meant that the U.S., and this is Donald Hickey writes, the U.S., quote, missed an opportunity to reforge the Anglo-American Accord of the 1790s and to substitute peace and prosperity for commercial restrictions and war, end of quote. So in other words, this treaty would have been, it wasn't everything that Jefferson wanted, but it would have been better than nothing. But Jefferson just said, nope, if you don't give up impressment, I don't want to make any deal with you. It seems to me an impressed sailor wouldn't necessarily be the highest quality sailor. And the British Navy was known for being so efficient and dominating. I wonder how that all worked. Yeah, it's interesting. The My response to what you said would be yes and no, because one thing I didn't mention a minute ago is that I was talking about press gangs, but press gangs didn't just go onto American ships. Press gangs were a major way that the British Navy used to get sailors into the Navy. And they would send them out into pubs, to bars, to restaurants, other places, you know, town squares. And they would just grab people and say, all right, you're coming with me. You're in the Navy. So they would just forcibly put British citizens into the Navy. And they were often poor, obviously the poorest. Sometimes they would get people drunk and then the person would pass out and he'd wake up on a British ship, things like that. So I would say that the average quality of an American seaman or sailor was probably actually better than that of the British. And especially when you consider the morale was better because British sailors were so poorly paid and so poorly treated. So on one level, I would say man for man, the average American sailor was a little bit better than the average British one. However, having said that, you're right in that once you are impressed, if you're an American and you were in the U.S. Navy and then now all of a sudden you're in the British Navy fighting against your own people or about to fight against your own people, uh, eventually, obviously, they're going to, then you're not going to want to do it. You don't want to fire upon your own country and your own people. You might even have relatives or you might know people on the ship that you're shooting at. And a lot of times, American impressed sailors who were working on British ships would ask the captain if they could go down underneath and not participate in the battle. Some British captains said, that's fine. You, you don't have to fight. Others said, forget that. You are going to fight. So, <laughs> so yeah, you're right. The motivation wouldn't be very high. And it's, it's, it's certainly not hard to imagine them, you know, oops, I accidentally forgot to pull the, the string or, you know, pull the cord on the cannon or oops, I accidentally uh, put in too much powder or too little powder or things like that. Yeah, definitely. And another thing that kind of struck me is I know the British didn't quite banned slavery yet at this point, but this kind of seems like slavery by a different name. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. These, these poor, impressed British, I mean, American sailors were, were not free. They were, they were being forced. I mean, they got paid, but not very much, but they were certainly not there on their own will. Now, from my understanding, the next big thing is this Chesapeake incident. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. The Chesapeake was an American frigate, and I'm going to go into some detail about all these different types of ships, but let's just say for now, a frigate is a, one of the larger ships. It's not the absolute largest class of ships, but it's the second one. It's kind of, it's, think of it not as a battleship, but more as a cruiser, like the second, you know, as I said, the second largest class of ships. So it's a, it's a big ship. The Chesapeake had several British subjects, including four Royal Navy deserters and its crew. The British government had been unable to recover the deserters through regular diplomatic channels. And because of this, the commander of the British fleet at Halifax, Nova Scotia, who was named Rear Admiral Sir George Berkeley, he ordered a ship called the HMS Leopard, which has 52 guns. And throughout this series, I'm going to identify these ships by the number of guns that they carried. That will help us to know just how powerful they were. So the Leopard carried 52 guns and guns by guns. I mean, cannons, of course, big guns. And he sent the Leopard to confront the Chesapeake. The Chesapeake had only 40 guns and to use force if necessary. The idea was to, to get onto the ship 
and get these British guys off and put them back into the British Navy. Nine miles off the American coast, the captain of the Leopard demanded that the Chesapeake allow a boarding party to search for the deserters. The Chesapeake's captain refused. And when this happened, the Leopard opened fire, killing three and wounded 16, wounding 16, and one of these later died. Because of the Chesapeake was unable to get its guns into position, it surrendered. Then the British boarded the American ship and took away the four deserters. President Jefferson protested this action and the British government disavowed it recalled Berkeley, paid compensation, and returned three of the four deserters who were Americans who had previously been impressed into British service. So think about that. I mean, yes, they had deserted from the British Navy, but only because they had been forced into the British Navy. So it's interesting, to Steve. They were originally American sailors, and then they were pressed into the British service, and then they escaped and became Americans again. And then they were British again temporarily. But it's kind of funny. Just keep changing your uniform. But the fourth man, unfortunately for him, he really was British. He was honest to goodness British deserter and he was hanged. So, but despite the fact that the British basically backed down and paid compensation and did just about everything they should have done, the event further soured American and British relations. I mean, it seems to me Berkeley shouldn't have done that pretty clearly, but it also seems that the British tried to make it right. I can see that that wouldn't make relations any better though but at least they they kind of owned that one yeah i mean it was a gross violation of american naval sovereignty and you know when you consider everything that had gone on in the past especially the impressment it was just kind of like another cut if you will just kind of another punch in the face that the americans greatly resented Halifax is a really cool place. I feel like this might be the drinking game for this series that I've been to a lot of these places. Our um, family, we just drive a lot and go to different places. And Halifax is one of the places. It's a really kind of out of the way place for most Americans. You really got to make a plan to go there. But it's really it looks like an old, it looks like Boston or Philadelphia or anything like that, but it's on a hill that's completely steep. And you can see that they picked a really perfect place to put their a fort right there. Yeah, that's really cool. I've I've never been there. In fact, so listener, one of the reasons I wanted Steve to be my co-host in this series is because Steve is originally from Buffalo and Buffalo is right near the action, as we will see in future episodes. And and Steve's been to a lot of these War of 1812 sites. I have been to pretty much zero of them. (laughs) I've never never been to that part of the country around the Great Lakes and all. I have been to Washington, D.C., of course, and I've been to Baltimore. And those are going to enter into the story much later. But but yeah, it'll be great. I look forward to hearing your insights on some of these places and like what they're like today and, and so on. So all right. Yeah, that's definitely a cool part of the to be a, the since these places a lot of them haven't dramatically changed very much either. Now I'm wondering, kind of, what's the next step after that? There's some more orders, and there's embargoes, and there's all sorts of things going on. So we're it seems like we're ramping things up some more. Yeah, exactly. Things are going to continue to get worse and worse, at least in terms of the relationship between the U.S. and Great Britain. You know, you would think after. The Chesapeake incident, it's kind of like, oh, they kissed and made up and all everything's going to be great now. But that is not the case, as we will see. So again, keep in mind, we cannot forget the context of what's going on between Britain and America is that Britain is at war with France and fighting, fighting to the death. They're fighting Napoleon and his army and navy. And Napoleon has a few things to say about trade as well. In 1806, Napoleon's government declared a blockade of the British Isles and said they would seize all British-produced goods, even if they were on neutral ships. So, of course, that affects America. And you think about the American government and how they must be feeling, Jefferson and and the others, because here the British are telling us what we can and cannot do with our ships, and now the French are getting in on the act too. And the British, to retaliate against the French action, they passed a series of decrees that are called Orders in Council. These orders in council are really strange. Um, If you look into them, was this sort of law ever used before? I've never quite heard of anything quite like it. James here. And now a brief word from our sponsors. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yeah, you don't hear a whole lot about this outside of studying the War of 1812, but they had been around before. Let me break that down a little bit more for you. So Technically, an order in council is an order by the the sovereign, that is the king or the queen, at a meeting of the privy council by which the British government decrees policies. In fact, this type of legislation, believe it or not, is still used on occasion, partly by the exercise of the royal prerogative, as they say, but it's really more of a past thing. But, But in American history, the term orders in council is used collectively to refer to the group of such orders in the late 18th and early 19th centuries which restricted neutral trade and enforced a naval blockade of Napoleonic France and its allies. In total, the collective term orders in council refers to more than a dozen sets of blockade decrees in the years 1783, 1793, 1794, 1798, 1799, 1803 to 1809, 1811, and 1812. So yeah, it gets used a lot all the way, you know, from right after the Treaty of Paris, all the way going up to the War of 1812. But in general, when we say orders in council, we're usually associating that term with the decrees of January 7th, 1807, and also another one later that year, and then another one in 1809. And those were most irritating to the Americans. So it's basically just, again, the British government in its, I would say, in its arrogance, you know, I'm an American, so maybe I'm biased, but just telling the U.S. what they can and cannot do, where where they can go, where the ships can go, where they can trade, things like that. Now, the most important of these orders in council stated that all neutral ships trading with France, neutral, of course, the Americas, America, the U.S. is neutral in this war between Napoleon and, and the British government. All neutral ships trading with France had to stop in Britain and pay a duty, you know, or a fee, basically. Otherwise, they would be regarded as hostile. Britain stopped hundreds of American ships and American ship captains, though affected by this decree, still found ways to get around it. Americans have always had a great genius for getting around rules, right, Steve? (laughs) It goes back all the way to the beginning. (laughs) We're good at that, especially taxes. But anyway, I'm getting off script here. So both the orders in council and the French retaliatory policies resulted in the seizure of about 900 American ships between 1807 and 1812. And of course, this also further damaged American relations with both Britain and France. Naturally, I mean, you think about that in a five-year period, 900 ships, that's about, that's almost 200 a year. And that would be extremely irritating to our, both our naval ships as well as our merchant ships. So Jefferson wanted to get back at Britain and France. And if you're going to get back, if you're going to get revenge, stand up for your rights, there's one of two ways to do it. You can go to war or you can use economic warfare. And Jefferson was smart enough to realize that if we were to go to war at that time, especially since he cut the Navy down to almost nothing, if we were to go to war with France or Britain, it would be a losing fight. So he decides on economic warfare. So Jefferson gets the Congress famously to pass the notorious Embargo Act of 1807, 
this prohibited American ships from leaving port. That's really stiff. That's very strong. It's like, you, sure you want to sail somewhere? Tough. You can't do it. And by the way, he enforced this very strongly and, and he occasionally used draconian measures, which goes against what Jefferson stood for, at least supposedly. <laughs> anyway, Jefferson and Congress hoped that the lack of imports from America would cause Britain and France to stop harassing American ships. I have to say, this wasn't totally insane on Jefferson's part. It was logical because both Britain and France did rely pretty heavily on American imports or American exports to them. They imported them in, obviously, American food as well as other supplies. But in this case, it didn't work. The policy had little effect on Britain or France, but it devastated the American economy. As an example, American exports dropped from 108 million in 1807 to 22 million in 1808. And so that's in one year, they dropped you know, by about 80%. That's incredible. An estimated 55,000 American seamen became unemployed, as did about 100,000 workers in related industries. So as you can see, this totally backfired. It was a total disaster, devastated the American economy, didn't hardly, wasn't even a blip on, on the radar screen of Britain and France. So a couple of years later, in March 1809, Congress repealed the embargo and passed a new law prohibiting trade with Britain and France, but allowing it with other nations. Many American ships found ways to trade with the banned nations anyway. That's going to be, that might be a drinking game, Steve. Uh, we're going we're to see many, many times Americans do not follow the laws about who you can trade with and who you can't. There's a little foreshadowing. <laughs> now, the next year, Congress reopened trade with Britain and France, but the latter, meaning France, kept up their depredations on American shipping. Then in 1811, the new president, James Madison, imposed the Non-Importation Act, which Congress made into law. And again, the law had no effect on the European powers. The thing is, is that Britain, France, they had plenty of other places they could get food and other supplies. They didn't depend nearly as highly on American exports as Jefferson thought they would. And it's, so at this point, the U.S. is pretty much between a rock and a hard place. They can't trade. They can't keep switching back and forth. So it must have re it was wreaking havoc on the, the economy. And then there's still all sorts of other dissensions going on. So that's pretty much that's where we stand is there's not many options left available to the U.S. Yeah, there, there's really at this point nothing they can do to stop Britain and France from harassing our ships. You know, they, they don't have, certainly don't have the military might to do anything about it, at least not at this time. And as we've seen, the economic warfare doesn't work. So it looks like with economic war failing, it looks like we're going to be moving in a more military direction. And they're kind of in the rock and the hard place because you don't get military might overnight. And they've been kicking that can down the road exactly for years right, at yeah. this point. That is oh, correct. Right. Okay. So then, so this is, we're kind of focusing throughout the, a good chunk of this episode on stuff that was going on on the coasts, mm -hmm. but now we're going to turn in because a lot of the war happens in the interior of the country. What's, what's going on in that area? Sure. Before I actually get into that, let me talk about one more thing that was on the Atlantic. In May of 1811, the heavy American frigate president, which had 54 guns, that's a, quite a few, the president began searching for the HMS Guerriere, which had impressed an American sailor. And the president couldn't find the Guerriere, but instead it encountered a small British ship called the Little Belt, which only had 20 guns. So, you know, it's way outgunned. The president at first thought that was the Guerriere and the ships exchanged fire. We don't know who fired first, but it doesn't matter because whoever fired first, the other one fired back really quickly. And in this one-on-one -on -one ship battle, nine of the Little Belt's crew were killed and 23 others were wounded. Many in Britain called for revenge, but the British government took no action. You know, you could see from this that even though the British were hassling our ships and impressing our sailors, it was very clear that they didn't want war. You know, keep that in mind, listener. The British, you know, with the Chesapeake affair, they apologized. They provided compensation. They did all that here. They, they didn't do anything, even though we fired on one of their ships. So. The British are, as I said, not exactly desiring and demanding that they go back to war with America, at least not the British government. And now we'll go out west, as you suggested. 
There's a lot going on in the interior, as you said. As, as, as everybody knows, the United States was expanding westward very gradually and, and constantly having conflicts with the Native Americans or Indians. I will probably call them Indians most of the time just because it's shorter. And, you know, and it, it's, there's problems with the term Native Americans as well. But if I say Indians, I don't mean that as a pejorative term. I know it's technically incorrect. I know that they're not from India, but, but we will use the term Indians for the most part as do most of the, the sources that I used. Okay, here is the problem. As the Americans spread west, and, and to be fair, they're, they're gradually depriving Indians of their land. The British tried to help the Indians out, to help them to fight back against the Americans. They had been providing, the British had been providing the Indians in the north and northwest with supplies, including weapons, while simultaneously trying to restrain them. Occasionally, Indians in the Northwest Territory rose up against the Americans who blamed the British for provoking the revolts. So that's another point of contention between the Americans and the British. The Americans were constantly saying to the British, hey, you guys are giving guns and other supplies to the Indians and they're killing us with them. So y'all need to stop. I'm sure they said y'all when they uh, (laughs) they said that too, but and you know they weren't really wrong. They weren't. I, the Americans exaggerated the extent to which the British were behind the Indians, but but they were to a certain extent. And just in passing, let me mention what the Northwest Territory is. Again, I think probably most of our American listeners would know, and Canadian listeners, but perhaps some of our listeners from other parts of the world may not know what that means. The Northwest Territory, as you can guess from the name, was an American territory that we gained after the Revolutionary War from the Treaty of Paris. It was not states at this point. It was just a territory, kind of like a colony almost. But And it makes up what is today the states of Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, and Michigan. So I, I think I got that right. Hopefully I got that right. I know it was made into five pretty states. pretty close, but, I would think. What's that now? I would, I think that's probably pretty close. Yeah. You know, there may be a little bit of it. Maybe some of it went into what became Minnesota later and things like that. But for the most part, that's what it is. And it was still heavily populated by Indians or Native Americans. You know, there weren't a lot of white settlers living there at the time. Now, in 1805, a Shawnee spiritual leader named Tenskwatawa, also known as the Prophet, began urging Native Americans to reject white customs and practices. You know, by this time, many Native Americans had started dressing in uh, Western clothing, you know, like American style clothing. They had been drinking alcohol and some of them are farming. They're they're learning English. You know, they're they're living more like the white Americans. And and Tenskwata said, we've got to stop this. You know, God, our God, the great spirit, as he would say, uh, doesn't want this. Now, at the same time, the governor of the Indiana Territory, which was one territory that was carved out of the Northwest Territory, Governor William Henry Harrison forced a series of land concessions on the local Indian tribes, which culminated in the 19, I'm sorry, 1809 Treaty of Fort Wayne. Okay, and I'm not going to talk much about Harrison's background because I'm going to do a whole episode on that later. So we'll just leave you in uh, suspense about who is this mysterious William Henry Harrison. Now, Harrison's actions in turn motivated Tecumseh, who was a, a warrior, is any warrior, a military leader, and he was Tenskwatawa's brother. Tecumseh called for military resistance against American encroachment on Indian lands. Tecumseh and the prophet, his brother, set up a camp at Prophetstown on the banks of the Tippecanoe River. They also sought British support, and bands of Indians began attacking white settlements in 1810. Um, where is this Prophet's town? And uh, I hate to hit you up with the mental map so early, but where oh, yeah, approximately is it? <laughs> yeah, so it is about 75 miles northwest of modern-day Indianapolis. So it's kind of in the northern, northwestern part of Indiana, but not extreme northwest Indiana. Okay, so what's going to happen next? Well, Governor Harrison begins assembling an army. And by the fall of 1811, he had a force of 1,000 regulars and volunteer militia. When I say regulars, I mean the regular U.S. Army. So of these 1,000, a few hundred were regulars and the rest were militia. In early November, he marched the force towards Prophetstown. And on November 7th, before dawn, as the Americans were camped out and preparing an attack on Prophetstown, the Indians decided to take the battle directly to Harrison. So 500 Indians attacked Harrison's camp. 
They killed many of Harrison's soldiers, but eventually Harrison's men overwhelmed the attackers and drove them away. Interestingly enough, Tecumseh was not there at that time. He was away on a recruiting mission. And the next day, Harrison ordered that Prophetstown be burned. So in this battle, this fight between the Americans and the Harrison's army and the Native Americans, Harrison lost about 200 casualties, while the Indians lost about 100. Harrison could claim victory, though, because he drove the Indians from the field, but the Indian attacks would not end. And again, let me just go ahead and say what a casualty means. Most of our listeners know this, but just in case, a casualty means someone who is either killed, wounded, someone who goes missing, or someone who is captured as a prisoner. So when I say Harrison lost 2,000 casualties, that doesn't mean 2,000, I'm sorry, a 200, but 2,000 would be terrible. Yeah, uh, that would be more than his whole army, right? <laughs> but he lost about 200 casualties, so that doesn't mean 200 killed. It means uh, you know a few of those were killed, but most of them would have been wounded. Some of those, of course, later would die of their wounds. But anyway, so it just means a casualty means you're take you're not able to fight the next day and for a while probably for one reason or another. Now this battle, which comes to be known as the Battle of Tippecanoe, it drove many natives into the arms of the British. But it also caused many Americans to hate the British who had provided the Indians with many guns. So this is the famous Battle of Tippecanoe, and General Harrison gets a nickname. He, he begins to be known as Old Tippecanoe. Do we know what happened at, um, to Tanskawatawa? Was he at Prophetstown at that point? James here. And now a brief word from our sponsors. Doctors endorse it. Nutritionists recommend it and customers love it. Calatron Healthy Weight Loss. Marie in Pennsylvania lost 117 pounds with Calatron. Ron in Texas lost 35 pounds. Diane not only lost weight, but she also found relief from arthritis. Lynn lost over 35 inches and 45 pounds. Calatron contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body, which decreases as we age. Taking Calatron promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calatron has an amazing 86% success rate with their 90-day supply. And this week, take advantage of their President's Day sale. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free, plus free shipping. Ordering is so easy. Just text the word BATTLES to 30605 and I'll send you a link to this special offer. Once again, text the word BATTLES, B-A-T-T-L-E-S, 30605. You'll be glad you did. This is Organized Crime and Punishment. History and crime like you've never heard it. Joy and Mustache Chris, Steve, and their crew as they take deep dives into the fascinating stories of the Mafia. Find Organized Crime and Punishment at the website, organizedcrimeandpunishment.com and everywhere else you find great podcasts. Make sure you tell your friends about Organized Crime and Punishment so that friends of yours can become friends of ours. Forget about it. The history of the popes of Rome and Christianity reaches into nearly every aspect of history. In the History of the Papacy podcast, we step over the rope. We dive in to discover more about the people, events, and background that define the influence of the popes of Rome and church, not only on the West, but the world. To start listening now, go to ParthenonPodcast.com or search for History of the Papacy on your favorite podcast platform. Tenskwatawa, I am not 100% sure. You know, I know that obviously Tecumseh wasn't there. So Tecumseh is going to come back eventually and he's going to be able to fight another day. He's going to take place in some of the, uh, some of the battles that are going to occur in Canada. There goes the spoiler alert, people. There's going to be fighting in Canada. <laughs> but Tenskwatawa lives. He, he's not killed at this time, nor is he killed during the War of 1812. He's going to live to be you know, over 60. He lives well into the 1830s. Oh, wow. Yeah. And there's a whole, what'd you say? There's there's a whole history with the Native Americans there too. It's, it's, there's so many different moving parts with this, with the conflict that doesn't get covered as much, but this is really rich history here. 
Yeah, there's so much. You're right. It's complicated. You know, you've got British, French, Native Americans and shifting alliances. And what's very interesting, we'll talk about this more in a future episode, but even in Canada, you have a lot of a lot of residents of Canada are really Americans who've just recently moved up there for economic reasons, uh, for new opportunities. And they're called late loyalists. And you have a lot of Irish in Canada who are not famous for their love of the British. <laughs> so you have Irish in, in America and it, it's, it's just really complicated. So, I mean, you could do a whole year on this. You could do a 40, 50 part series, but we're going to keep it down to 12 or 13, I think. So we'll hit the highlights. All right. We're here for key battles of American history. So we need some uh, war to commence here. How does the war actually begin? The full declaration? Yeah. So these British actions that we have been describing between 1805 and 1812 motivated an increasing number of Americans, mainly Republicans, that, that would be followers of Jefferson and his political party, to call for war with Great Britain. War would, they thought, solve America's problem with problem with the British, both on the seas and in the Northwest. War would also improve the standing of Republicans in American politics at the expense of the Federalists. It might help unify the Republican Party, which was beginning to show cracks. Now, let's do a quick refresher on the American political situation at this time. I know you're, you're dying for battle, Steve. You're dying for <laughs> war. It's like, come on, let's just, let's just get the war going. But let's do a little more politics here because this you know, as we know, if you study history, Steve knows this, I know this, listeners, you know this, that every war is intensely political and you cannot separate the political from the military. So the, this was what we had going on right now was called the two-party system, the first two-party system. And that was the Federalist Party on one hand and the Republican Party, which is not to be confused with the later Republican Party, which is still around today. The modern day Republican Party was started in 1854. This is the Republican Party that was started by Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. Sometimes in textbooks, it's called Democratic Republicans with a hyphen, you know, Democratic hyphen Republican. But for the most part at the time, they just called it Republicans. They weren't really thinking about the future, were they? They're, they're confusing us by <laughs> they should have known that Lincoln and his group was going to form another Republican Party and come up with another name. Just kidding. But so the Federalists were the party of Alexander Hamilton, John Adams, and other and like John Marshall and some of the early founders. The Federalists were more interested in commerce and banking and finance and shipping and things like that. They were kind of the merchant class, if you will. That and they they were some they were kind of like you know the middle class and the upper class for the most part. They wanted a stronger national government. They favored Great Britain and their foreign policy. And on the other side, the Republicans, led by Jefferson, Madison, and some others, they were more pro-France. They liked a smaller government. They were more on the side of farmers and common workers, you know, manual laborers and people like mechanics and shop workers, although they also had a large contingent of big slaveholders. So go figure, you know, it's kind of an odd strange bedfellows that you had these fabulously wealthy planters who owned hundreds of slaves on the one hand, and then you had poor farmers. But those together made up the basis of the Republican Party. And so the Republicans, as I hinted, they really did not like Great Britain. They hated Great Britain. And that's part of the reason why they wanted to go to war with Great Britain. The Federalists did not want to go to war with Great Britain because they, they first of all, just in general, they favored Great Britain for cultural reasons and political reasons, but especially for commercial reasons, because the Federalists, as I said, they were the party of trade and shipping and, you know, making money through the carrying trade, things like that. They, I, sometimes I tell my students, they were the UPS of the early colonies, right? Or the FedEx. So they realized that if we went to war with Great Britain, that trade was going to cut off and it's going to hurt them, just like it had hurt them under the Embargo Act. Okay, so we come to the 12th Congress, which convened in November 1811. It was overwhelmingly Republican, and the Republican caucus contained a group of about a dozen young men labeled war hawks who lobbied for war with Britain. These are younger men who had not fought in the revolution. They were much too young, and they didn't really, I think, in my opinion, is they didn't understand how bad war was. 
you know, and so they really wanted to, they, they were big pro-war people not having any personal experience with it. Their leader was Henry Clay, who was Speaker of the House. We're going to hear a lot from Henry Clay through this series. Now, between December 1811 and April 1812, Congress passed laws to increase the size of the army to 35,000, you know, which today sounds pathetically small, but back then that was very, very big by the standards of the time. And Congress also authorized the government to purchase weapons and ammunition. They also approved the building of additional coastal fortifications and the improvement of existing Navy ships. But they voted down efforts to build new warships. You know, too expensive. You know, sorry, I can't do that. Too much money. They also agreed to borrow money and to pass a set of modest taxes to finance the war. And that's something for Republicans because Republicans hated taxes. In February 1812, President Madison discovered that a British agent named John Henry, not the one who was hammering down the mountain, (laughs) that's later, but this John Henry had been traveling around New England, trying to gauge anti-war sentiment there. The next month, Madison told Congress that Henry had been trying to stir up disaffection and possibly even promote the idea of secession. And that was an exaggeration. Henry was not doing this, but that's what Madison said. In response, Congress enacted a 90-day trade embargo with Great Britain. And there's another embargo, Steve, because those work so well. (laughs) Meanwhile, in the first half of 1812, the British government made several efforts to avoid war. These culminated in their June 16th offer to suspend the orders in council in return for the U.S. dropping its embargo. That's huge. Britain is finally saying, we'll stop harassing your ships. You'll have freedom of the seas. But word of this British decision to suspend the orders in council did not reach the U.S. until August 13th. By then, it was too late. Communication was extremely slow back then. Obviously, there's no cell phones and there's no computers. There's no internet. There's no telephones. They didn't even have a transatlantic cable yet. So the only way to get a message from Britain to the U.S. is to put it on a ship and have the ship sail, and that can take a long time. So the U.S. had no idea in April, May, June of 1812 that the British government was willing to drop the orders in council. On June 1st, President Madison sent a message to Congress outlining all of Britain's hostile actions against the U.S. He did not explicitly ask for a declaration of war, but he certainly hinted at it. His desire for war was very clear. And on June 17th, Congress passed a declaration of war, the first time ever that the U.S. Congress declared war against another country. The House of Representatives voted 79 to 49, and the Senate voted 19 to 13. That's very close. This was Congress's first formal declaration of war, as I said. It was also the closest vote for war in U.S. history. And it was a highly partisan vote. 81% of Republicans voted for it, while zero Federalists did. In general, the American South and the West welcomed the war, while, as I hinted before, New England opposed the war. The next day, President Madison signed the war declaration. It was on. A couple of things that I kind of realized with this that I didn't know before is if my uh, calculations serve me correctly, so the House and the Senate both voted for it for by about 60-40, which is pretty stark, one-sided affair. It, it, even by any today's standards, you don't see things that are usually that uh, uh, overwhelmingly voted for. Well, that's true with regular legislation today, but for declarations of war, it's it's the exact opposite. Typically, when the president asks for a declaration of war, he gets an overwhelming response. Now, it certainly, it depends on the war. And I have to say that a formal declaration of war has only happened five times in U.S. history. War of 1812, Mexican-American War, the Spanish-American War, World War I and World War II. And if, like, if you look at World War II in the House, it was like 400 and something to one. I mean, there was only one congressional representative who voted against declaring war on Japan in World War II. World War I wasn't that overwhelming, but it was probably like 90%. I don't have the numbers in front of me. I I certainly don't know the exact numbers on the other, but this is actually the closest, the closest that a declaration of war ever came to not passing. So yeah, having 40%, if you think about that, 40% of the senators and representatives voting no 
that means only slightly more than half the country really wants the war. We're going to see that heavy opposition to the war is going to be a big factor throughout the war. And the fact that 20% of the Republicans walked on it yeah, is that, that's uh, very kind interesting. of interesting. It really is. Yeah, because there were the Federalist Party was primarily, not entirely, but primarily confined to the Northeast. It was mainly a New England party by this time. The Republican Party was much more uh, widespread throughout the nation. And so you had some Northern and Northeastern Republicans who were involved in trade with Great Britain. And those are going to be the ones that do not want the war. They vote against it. That, that's a good observation. And then, of course, we have to always bring up that messages coming in too late will come up uh, time and time again in this conflict. Uh, yeah, they really it's a shame that they hadn't invented the fax machine yet. or something like that. <laughs> yeah, come on, guys. But yeah, oh, man, slow communications are going to plague both sides. I guess um, for me that to wrap up, I'd love to hear what do you what do you think about this prelude to war? What came across to you as, as shocking? Well, you know, I was thinking about this earlier. I think of it as a comedy of errors. And I shouldn't really use the term comedy, more of a tragedy, but just so much hubris on both sides. And maybe even more on the American side. I mean, let's be fair. How many times have we already seen that the British government kind of bent over backwards to avoid the war? It just seems like the Americans, or at least some of the Americans, mainly Republicans, were just you know chomping at the bit to fight. This is something we see a lot in early American history. It, nowadays, you know, we're much more jaded as Americans, and we've we've had the benefit of hindsight. We've seen we've been through so many horrible wars with millions of people killed. And but back then, it was still a young nation. We'd had the revolution. We'd beaten the British, who was the greatest military power in the world at the time, and. I think a lot of Americans just assumed, well, if our fathers did it, we can do it too. And there's actually, we'll talk in a future episode about why we're going to choose to jump on Canada first, primarily because Canada is very lightly populated. So it seemed like it was ripe for the picking. But yeah, I, I just see, I see a lot of, you know, it's, I guess it's easy for me to say this from hindsight's perspective, but I'll, I see a lot of naivete on the part of the Americans and, and a lot of hubris on both sides, but mainly on the American side. All right, listeners, well, that is the conclusion of our first episode, The Road to War. We've seen how the Americans and British have kind of blundered themselves into a war that could have easily been avoided, that really didn't have to happen, but it did happen. And so in our next episode, we're going to see the Americans go on the offensive, and they're going to take the war to the British in Canada. We'll see you then. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Key Battles of American History is a proud member of the Parthenon Podcast Network, which includes several other podcasts, including History Unplugged by Scott Rank, Beyond the Big Screen and History of the Papacy by Steve Guerra, This American President by Richard Lim, and Eyewitness History by Josh Cohen. If you haven't already, I strongly encourage you to check out these great podcasts. If you would like to support this podcast and help it to grow, there are four things you can do. First, you can subscribe to the podcast and leave a review on the podcast player of your choice. This helps other people to find the podcast. Ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts are especially helpful. Second, join our Facebook group, American History Fanatics, where we discuss the episodes of this podcast as well as other topics related to American history. Third, tell as many friends as you can about the show. And fourth, you can join the elite unit called Early's Raiders by going to patreon.com and searching for key battles of American history. There are five different levels of support to choose from. Each level allows you to have early access to ad-free episodes. Higher levels bring additional benefits, including bonus episodes and even the ability to commission episodes on topics of your choosing. Before I close, I would like to give a shout out to the current members of Early's Raiders. Thanks to Majors Chris C., Brandon Cuckler, Mike Leslie, Bob McCullough, Melissa Mueller, Doug Pergram, and Jacob Thomason. Captains Ryan Apashian, Blue Ridge 201, Alex Calabrese, Anna Concepcion Castro, Alex Coombs, Jacob Dyke, Grant Holmstrom, Jeff Henley, Stephen James, Jose Martinez, Tim Moon, Michael Rollison, David Santee, Michael Severino, Josh Wheatley, and Gregory Works. 
and Lieutenants Patrick Brennan, Sean Burrell, Matthew Christensen, Ronald Cohen, Craig Didier, jo- Scott Hendricks, Who's Your Daddy, David Lueza, and Jeff Sabo. I greatly appreciate your support. Thank you for listening to Key Battles of American History. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast catcher. And please be sure and spread the word about the show. If you can spare a few minutes, rate and review the show at Apple Podcasts. This greatly helps us to reach more listeners. And for show notes, maps, and further discussion, visit our website at www.keybattlesofamericanhistory.com. Thank you, and we look forward to joining you again in the next episode of Key Battles of American History. Thank you.